0: So, do you ever, I mean, do you ever get distracted? I've noticed since being back here, I am much more distracted than I am there. And I think that's just the way we live our life here in America. I mean, we are on the go, 24-7. And I was like that. When I was a civil engineer, I was running several different projects, and it seemed like my phone was always ringing. There was always somewhere to be, always someone to talk to. And it, it was just... It, I came to realize there's just a lot of distractions in my life. And, and I mean, we live in a world, right, where information is at our fingertips 24-7. I hooked this thing up to the internet and it's distracting me right now because a bunch of notifications are popping up on my, on my thing. So it's, it, we, we, that's the world we live in here. And, and we start to place value on some of these things. We, we, you know, We have this idea in our work culture that the more you work, the more you climb up this corporate ladder, the more money you make, the more satisfied you're going to be with your life, the happier you're going to be. You just got to get to the next level. And then we end up placing value on good things, on family, on friends. But all the while, we start placing less and less value on what matters most, on what is most important to God. His people, ones who are already in the fold, and ones who just need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And now, you know, if you have a job, value it so that you keep it. I'm not saying don't value those things. Value your friends. You want to have friends. It's good to have friends. Value your family. But when those things start climbing up that priority list, that ladder in your life, and all of a sudden they're number one, two, three, four, and God is down here somewhere, you're living in sin. You're living with idolatry, and so we need to we need to be mindful of those things. And you know, a quick story about that. I was it was it was late one night this fall, and we were getting ready to leave, and we needed some cash. And I thought, well, I'm I'm going to run out to the ATMs. This is in India, and uh, I thought we'll run out to the ATMs and uh, see if I can find anything that might have some money in it. And so. Uh, I did and it was it was a nice night and I found an ATM that had the light on and I stopped and there wasn't any cash in it so I'm like well I'm just going to go back home but there was a pharmacy open right next to it and um, the cool thing about living where we live is you don't need a prescription you walk up to the pharmacy he tells you you ask the chemist what you're supposed to take and he gives it to you and you pay about 30 cents and you get a full range of antibiotics it's pretty nice. So I'm talking to him and I'm trying to use my language and he realizes right away I'm not from around there. And uh, so he says, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm I'm from America. And right out of the gate, the first assumption he has of me, he doesn't say anything else. He says, you Americans, you're so distracted with your lives, you've forgotten what's most important. And, you know, that kind of put me on my heels a little bit. I didn't know what to say to that. So I just said, "Well, well, what's that? And he said, you've forgotten how to love people. Now, I may be dense sometimes, but I knew in that moment I was not out there for money. The Holy Spirit had made this moment, and we were going to talk about the greatest love known to mankind. And we did, and it was, it was a great conversation. And uh, I, I still pray for this guy because he, throughout the whole thing, you know, Jesus is just a great guy to him. But as we're talking about love, and I say, well, you know, I try to live my life this way, and I, I agree Americans are... Are really distracted and we can get caught up in our lives. And and he said to me, and I've been thinking about this since he said it. He said, You know how I know Jesus loved people? Because he knew a little bit. I mean, he he had heard some things. I was surprised. He said, You know how I know Jesus loves people? He, I said, How's that? He said, Because even when they were killing him on the cross, he said, forgive them. He said only a man full of love could do that. And so I plan on going back and seeing him. He's not a Christian, believe it or not, but he's got a lot of truth sitting in there that we want to try to work on. But So let's try to put some, some of these distractions away for the next few minutes and focus on something that matters most to God, his ransomed people. And what are they worth? What are they worth to God? Which means what should they be worth to us as followers who are part of the great co-mission that he has handed off to us. And, um, you know, as I think back to our Tabitha and my life story and, and how we kind of came about where we are now, and I, I sat in church for, for many years. We had lots of mission conferences, and there was, there was missionaries up there, and they were given the pitch for missions and all sorts of numbers and statistics and i heard all them and and it you know it pulls on your heartstrings a little bit but i think what really made me see how important this is is by seeing how much god values people the exceeding value he's placed on his chosen people the cost that it took to purchase the church that i think is what really kind of set my life on, on the, the track that, that we're now living. And, and so where we're going to start is Revelation 5-9 um, today. So if you're following along in your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. I, I think it might pop up behind me. I'm not sure. But Revelation 5-9. Now, Revelation chapters um, 4 and 5 are some of my favorite Bible. Because in Revelation chapter 4, you have this awesome picture of the throne room of God, Right? We, John, the writer of Revelation, he's, ha- he's seeing this vision and he's trying to put human words to what he's experiencing. And we see the, the four living creatures in that heavenly realm. We see the 24 elders in a constant state of worship, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And there's, there's flashes of lightning and there's rumblings and peals of thunder and it's just this, this awesome picture of worship that is happening in the throne room of heaven right now. And then we roll on into chapter 5, and in the midst of this majestic throne room, now enters a lamb, the Lamb of God. And, and John, who's writing it, he, he sees a scroll in heaven, but it's sealed. And, and he hears an angel ask, who is worthy to open the scroll? And, and to John, it appears that though none is worthy thankfully one of the heavenly elders said to him don't weep behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David he is conquered and he is worthy to open the scroll and, and in this John sees a lamb enter in as though it's been slain so have you ever seen a slain lamb I have it's not there's blood it's not a pretty picture But this is what he sees, a lamb as though it has been slain enters in, and we know that this is Jesus because only Jesus can be the lamb of God, the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, all at the same time. And so this is where we arrive at verse 9. So let's read it. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Is that shocking to you in, in any way? It's it's shocking to me a little bit because we have words like slain and ransom and blood, and then God is in this picture. So what is God doing in the ransom business to begin with? Because when we think of ransom, with all the kidnappings that happen today in the Mel Gibson movies, we don't really think of ransom as something that is, you know, God should have his hand in so much. So captives are, are in this also. It's implied when you have a ransom that there's, there's an exchange of something for the release of, of captives and there's languages and peoples and nations. So I want to focus in on a couple, a couple words if we can here. And they are, if you're taking notes, ransomed, blood, for God and from every. Ransomed, blood, for God and from every. <clears throat> so we see... Blood and ransom, and the definition of ransom as it's used here in verse 9 is to obtain the release of a prisoner by making a payment demanded for. So payment was required from someone for something, and we see that the payment that was demanded was blood, and it was the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus, God the Son. So I have to ask, who would require such a payment That God the Son would have to shed his own blood, and the answer is God the Father would require that from his own son. And because I'm a civil engineer and I do deductive reasoning and everything else, that leads me to another question, and I'm, I'm following this path. And so I see that and I say, okay, well, who or what could be worth such an infinite cost to purchase? What could be worth the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible tells us that, and let's turn back. If you're, if you're in your Bibles and following along, go back to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Now, this is where Paul, he's encouraging the new Ephesian elders of the Ephesian church that is, that is starting there. And he gives us this picture of what could be worth such a cost. And it says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Which he purchased with his own blood. So we see that from the, the verse in Revelation and here in Acts, that these, the, the ransom payment that was required was blood. And what was purchased was the church of God. And it was required to set captives free. And these captives, once they're set free by the ransom, by the payment that has been given by God, they become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They become the children of God. They become the church. They become the body. So, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about this. As I was, I was looking at this, I thought, well, as, as a born-again believer, that means I have blood money on my hands. I was was ransomed with blood. If you're a believer, you were ransomed with blood. The eternal state of your soul demanded that blood be shed. It wasn't some form of other wealth that was required of Jesus. He didn't just have to, you know, lay down his heavenly crown. He had to come into the world that he had created that had gone awry because of sin, live a perfect and blameless life as both man and God, all the while knowing what was at the end of it, the cross. And to me, that, that is otherworldly, right? I mean, to, to, we, we see our, our first responders in acts of incredible bravery will, will lay down their lives for strangers at times. We see where parents, because they love their children so much, will sacrifice themselves to save their children. Jesus came and did this for his enemies. As people living in sin, we are in enmity with God. We cannot have full relationship with God while we live in sin. So Jesus came and he said, I'm going to go do that not for my friends, but for enemies who will become my friends because of this ransom payment that I am going to give. And so why would, why would he do that? Um, I, you know, I, that's the question I ask myself. I look at, I look at me in the mirror, and I say, I, "Why, why would he do that? Why would he care that much?" And there's two things that I want to focus on, focus in on here, here quickly. And, uh, you know, as I, I prayed about this, as as we were preparing to come back, and I knew what I wanted to talk to, to church churches on and everything, and I, I my mind kept dwelling on joy and obedience. Jesus was willing to pay that ransom price and bring a people unto himself by u- using his own blood because of joy and obedience. And Hebrews 12, too, paints that picture for us, for joy. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God who for the joy set before him endured the cross. See, because Jesus is God, was God, always will be God, at whatever point in eternal time that God the Father revealed the redemptive plan to God the Son, he was able to look ahead at Revelation 5-9 and see that new song being sung and say, yep, that's worth it. That's the joy that's set before me as I endure this cross. It wasn't the cross. There was nothing joyful about the cross for Jesus other than the fact that he saw the end result of it. He suffered physically. And I think people suffer physically every day, especially in today's world. And and there was nothing fun about a Roman criminal death. Jesus' flesh was cleaved from his bones in the scourge. That crown of thorns... Thorns probably scraping along his skull as they pressed it on with sticks. And then you have what we call nails. The stakes that were driven through his hands and his feet. And then, naked, put on display for the world to see. That's suffering. But if we look at the spiritual suffering of Jesus Christ, we get an idea of how much we are loved by him. Because think about it, this is a man. Jesus, the man, Jesus, the God. He never sinned, which means he, as far as a man can on this earth, live in full communion with God. He never once experienced being out of the presence of God, even on this earth, as much as he could be. And he went to the cross, and all of a sudden, all your sin, all my sin, All the sin of the people in South Asia and everywhere across the globe for all time was placed on him in a moment. And I don't know exactly how that happens in God's view, but it happened. And for a moment, Jesus was out of communion with God the Father. That spiritual suffering, you and I will not know. And I can't imagine what that was like for him. But he did it nonetheless because he loves you and he loves me and he loves the people of South Asia, of North Asia and everywhere in between, every language, people, nation and tribe. No one was to be left out of that. So the joy of seeing captives set free, held prisoner by sin, that's what led him there. And then I don't think that we can overlook just the simple obedience to the will of the Father. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Romans 5.19 says that so by the one man's, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. So we see that Jesus' obedience to the Father and the joy of seeing his church led him to the cross and it strengthened him to pay that price. So what's, what's this all mean for us? What should it mean for you? Should it change our behavior? Should it change the way that we think about the people here in Indiana but everywhere around the world? Well, not only did Jesus love you, you that much, but as I mentioned before in John ten sixteen, he says, hey, I have other sheep, other people that are not yet in this ransom payment demand, this church, the fold. I want to bring them also. And they'll listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. But they have to hear my voice. And that's why we as the John ten sixteen team do what we do. You see, I... Matthew, the Great Commission is, is not a parable. Go and make disciples of all nations. All authority, all authority in heaven has been given unto me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And the best part of that, I think, is, and I will be with you while you do all of it, he says. He just says, go and make disciples of everyone that you can. It's a rather, it's a rather simple task, that he's given us when you just look at it by that frame. Go and make disciples. And it it shouldn't be that once we're saved, we kind of throw in the towel, so to speak, where we kind of say, well, hey, I'm safe. You all can figure it out for yourself. You see, if, if you are a believer, it is not God's expectation that you partake in the Great Commission. It is his commandment that you do. It doesn't say, if you feel like it, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, all that being said, parentheses, is everyone called to cross-cultural missions? No. Is everyone called to go overseas? No. In fact, I would have to say the vast majority of you in here are not called to that. Statistically speaking, the group I'm looking at, I would imagine there's at least three of you in here that are called to that. God might just be asking you to walk across the street to your neighbor's house. He might just be wanting you to cross the aisle at work to go into the next cubicle, to walk across the cafeteria to the outcast kid who's sitting by himself and has no friends. So have you seen the unmeasurable, infinite cost that Jesus was willing to pay, not only for you, but for people from every part of the globe? You see, he was the only one who could satisfy that ransom demand. And, and I think it's important to note this, that if, if it costs the father and the son such a heavy price, do we expect that it's going to cost us nothing? Because I think we can fall into that trap sometime. You see, the devil will do anything he can to make sure he keeps you distracted by your life. He wants you out of the game. You are ineffective if he is keeping you distracted. And that's exactly what he wants to do. That father of lies will tell you all sorts of things to make sure that what's most valuable to God starts losing a few pegs every now and again. Because if you're not in the game, he doesn't really care that you're sitting on the bench. So let me me ask you, What are the ransomed people of God worth to you? What price would you be willing to pay to make sure that people from every tribe, nation, language, and people hear the good news that the price for their freedom from sin has already been paid by the one who loves them enough to see his blood spill on the ground? Are they worth some ridicule? Are they worth some rejection? Are they worth some of your stuff? Some of your money. Here's here's a question. Are they worth your life? They cost Jesus his. Do we expect that it should cost us any less to continue on? Now, because I know some of your people here, and I don't know many, but I know some of you, I know Saving Grace is not a sideline church, and I know probably the majority of you are not sideliners, that you do have some skin in the game. And, and I, I know that just because from the love and support that Tabitha and I have received um, from this church, and you guys really don't know us <laughs> that well. Uh, well. Hopefully we can fix that a little bit. But I, I, can, I can tell probably the majority of you are not sideliners. But I'd imagine some of you are if we're just plainly speaking to one another. The ransomed people of God are like Maybe not even in the top ten of what you have to do. And if I'm being honest with you, there was a time in my life where I, I'm I'm in your shoes. There was even a time in my life whenever we had made the decision to go, where I dug my heels in and I told God, "I am not going." And you can tell how well that worked out for me. But but we can get distracted. I was distracted at the time. I, I actually, I had to have the guy who was working for me put my, I was able to retire because uh, I bought some time back, but that, neither here nor there, but I retired. And I had to have the guy who was working for me put the, put the papers in the fax machine and hit the button because I couldn't do it. And I told him I was going to hold that against him the rest of his life. <laughs> but it was the, it, 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 I, that's where I was at. But uh, I want to I close here because I want to make sure we have, have lots of time for, for Q&A. But I, I think it, I don't maybe sometimes but it's hard for people to go from like you know absolutely nothing going on with the Great Commission to hey I'm going to go overseas. I think there's little acts of obedience along the way that leads you into being able to make big decisions of obedience and And um, it took years and years of gentle nudging for me. I think I didn't know that that invitation from the Harvest Elders was coming. And I think if it would have came three years earlier, I would have written it off right away. (laughs) I said, no, this is not for me. But God was preparing Tabitha and I as we were newly married and getting involved in the church. I took a perspectives class, which totally changed my worldview. And I think it's little acts of obedience along the way. And and so I want to leave you with something, because I can't stand up here and tell you what your role in the Great Commission is. I don't, I don't know. You have to seek God, discover that for yourself, and figure out what role it is to play. Sending and going, or, or praying and sending, or going. And I've heard it said recently, you're either a sender, a goer, or you're disobedient. So I, want to give you, I do want to give you something, though. <laughs> um, I think I would be amiss if I, if I didn't give you something that's, that's been really influential in my life. And so about six years ago, as we were doing one of our trainings, and the, there, we were in the middle of this training, and at 10.02, the guy stopped. And he just started praying. And, you know, we're kind of looking at each other like, well, I guess we're, we're supposed to be praying. So we, we all pray, and he's praying Luke 10:2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. And so that really affected uh, Chris and I. And uh, that was about five years ago. And we, since then, every day at 10.02 a.m., our phones remind us to pray for the harvest. And that's getting some skin in the game. It is. I think prayer is often a very crucial but overlooked piece of the Great Commission. And so I want to encourage you guys, even if you have your smartphones, put a calendar event in there, 1002, to remind you, because you'll be distracted tomorrow at 1002 a.m. I know you will be. I will be. My phone will remind me to pray. And put it in from now till forever. If Google gave you when Jesus comes back, click that one. But from now until forever, we want to be praying for the Great Commission. And imagine what we might see if even 50% of the people in this room every day at ten o two send those prayers up into that heavenly throne room. It gives me chills to think about. So, thank you. Um, I'm gonna pray real quick and then we'll transition into the Q&A time. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for today. Thank you that uh, we are here together, that we can openly and freely worship you. And I just pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, as, as we look at the ransom people of God and what it costs you to purchase them, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would look at the people around us in our everyday lives. Yes, we want to remain focused on, on people in Uganda and we want to remain focused on the underground church in China, but Heavenly Father, a lot of times we look right past the people who are right in front of us who need to hear your good news. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be open to that, that we would be willing to lead, uh, follow your lead. And that you would just give us a boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in our everyday life. And I thank you for this time. I pray that you're with the rest of it. In Jesus' name, amen.